0: Well, good morning, everybody. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time and you might have walked in and thought, man, I've never seen a church execute a construction motif quite so effectively. Yeah? So, hey, uh, we'll be entering a period of stability here next week. Uh, The wall in the auditorium will be completed, and then we'll be like this for about three and a half months. Um, And it looks like at that point we'll be moving into a tent for a while, so that could be kind of fun. Not 100% yet, but Keystone in the summer. It's intense. See what I did there? Oh, so good! Anyway... All right. Hey, so we are in the final week of a series called Crossing Over. Uh, And then next week, of course, we'll be starting that New Testament challenge thing. So that's something to look forward to. If you have your copy, don't start reading it yet. We'll start a week from Monday. Uh, But for our time today... What I want to do is begin by sharing with you the setup to one of the most memorable lectures that I ever attended. And I was in school for a very long time, and so I've been to quite a few lectures. Uh, This one was at Calvin Theological Seminary in the late 1990s. Oh yeah, right? And I know some of you are thinking seminary sounds a bit like cemetery. That's true. Um, It's actually the school where pastors get trained, and there are days it feels like that. But anyway, this was a counseling class, and the point of the counseling class was to train us and give us some principles so that we could help people. Uh, The other idea behind the class was that being a pastor is sort of an interesting gauntlet to run emotionally, and so maybe to help us find some stability with our own emotional health before we head into the local church, which is a great idea. But this particular lecture, uh, the professor did something very unusual. He began by summarizing a nine-page short story for us, written by a guy who we don't talk a lot about in seminary or church, Edgar Allan Poe. Okay? Is that picture really creepy or is it just me? Okay, especially when it's really big. Anyway, so uh, Edgar Allan Poe, of course, wrote The Raven. He wrote The Pit and The Pendulum. And this day, the professor began by describing for us this short story called The Cask of Amontillado. Amontillado is a very, very expensive wine. And so this was a story about a cask of wine. But really, it was a story of revenge. Yeah, the main character, as you kind of meet him at the beginning of the short story, uh, has a significant uh, relational damage with a friend of his, and we don't know why, um, but he decides he's going to extract revenge, and his friend has a penchant for drinking, and so one day, it's like carnival time, his friend is drunk, he comes up to him you know, later in the afternoon, early evening, and he says, hey, you know, in my family's wine cellar, we have this brand new cask of amontillado, it's aged, it's perfect, I'd love you to try some friend agrees. So they go to his house and they, and he leads his friend deeper and deeper into the wine cellar, uh, which apparently was fairly vast in this particular story. Eventually, uh, they come to this niche in the wall and he says to his friend, hey, go in there and then I'll go fetch some of the wine. I'll bring it to you. It's like where we drink the wine. And the friend is significantly inebriated. And instead of bringing wine for his friend to sample, he actually chains his friend inside the niche. Uh, here's an artist rendering that shipped with the short story. Like I said, Edgar Allan Poe, not really seminary stuff or church stuff, but we're going there. Okay, yeah. So he changes friend. Initially, the friend's like, ha-ha, very funny. And then the friend starts to realize that something is not going well when the main character begins to brick him inside the niche, one brick at a time. And the story ends by saying, 50 years later, no one ever found the body. Welcome to church, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, And what the professor did is he told us a story, and he said, I tell you the story uh, because I want to ask you a question. And it has a question that has everything to do with your heart, and the question goes like this. If you were going to break somebody up behind a wall, who would it be? (laughs) Future leaders of the church, right? If you were going to break somebody up, and he says, and I'm aware that this question is hitting you at a couple different spots. Some of you are completely offended that I would even ask the question. Others of you are thinking, I only get to pick one, Right? (laughs) And he, he said, because, because here's the thing, uh, this is a story about revenge, but I want to talk to you today about forgiveness. Uh, because all of us, as we navigate life as broken people in a broken world, surrounded by other broken people in a broken world, we all experience bumps relationally. Some of them very, very significant. Maybe it's apparent parent. Uh, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's an ex, whether it's an ex-boyfriend or an ex-husband or an ex-employee or an ex-employer, uh, there's relational damage. And if you're honest, um, you know, they would be someone you might consider. You wouldn't actually break them behind a the wall, but you wouldn't hate it if somebody else did, right? Uh, maybe it was just a friend who hurt you in ways that defy healing. And uh, so the professor says, I wanted to start there because of your heart and because of the hearts of those that you serve. We invite people as the church to follow the example of Jesus, and to follow the example of Jesus is to walk a pretty counterintuitive path. Uh, What comes naturally to us, Jesus is going to have us move away from that, and he's going to help. He's going to invite us to follow him along a path uh, that really will bring us to the best sort of life that we can have in the midst of this broken world, but it's not a path that we often choose. And he said one of the things that people miss most often about Jesus, at least in his experience as a counselor, was in the area of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And he says, refusing to forgive people who harm us is so toxic to a pursuit of Jesus because when that unforgiveness takes root in the human heart, it messes with everything else. Well, uh, if you've been with us, you know this series, uh, we've used that image of following after Jesus is like walking along a path. And because the things he asks us to do or invites us to do just don't come naturally, we inevitably come to rivers of resistance that sort of block our path. And we have to cross over those rivers of resistance if we're going to access the life on the other side. We've already explored three of the four. Uh, We've talked about, put that up on the screen if you could, we've talked about debt, we've talked about fear, we've talked about busyness, and today we get to talk about unforgiveness. And my hope is that by the end of each of these sessions, you leave with some fresh insights on how you might begin to take steps to cross over because a lot of these things take a lot of work if we're really going to do what it takes uh, to get over the river of resistance. So today we get to talk about how to forgive those who hurt us, especially if the idea of forgiving someone feels impossible to you because of the nature of what was done for you. How do we forgive things that really don't feel forgivable? Uh, and, and, you know, the good news maybe is that forgiveness has been a struggle for people for almost as long as there have been people. And there's actually a conversation recorded uh, in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, the first book in the New Testament. And it's a conversation between Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, and Jesus. And the context for the conversation, you know, Jesus has spent a couple of years with his disciples and they're encountering resistance and they're getting bumped and dinged relationally, specifically by the religious leaders Uh, who are suspicious of Jesus, and also some of the Romans who think Jesus might be working to sort of start a revolution and overthrow them. And and, and so uh, Peter has watched as Jesus extends grace and forgiveness to people over and over and over again. When they do bad things to him, he forgives them. And Peter is starting to get a bit annoyed, I think, and it leads him to ask this question. He basically is going to ask Jesus, is there a limit to grace? Like, where is it it that we say enough is enough?" And we draw the line in the sand, and we say, you've gone too far, and now things are going to change. So it's Matthew chapter 18, we get this conversation. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? It's a great question, right? Because we all the people in our lives, we feel like are repeat offenders, and they sort of amass a debt with us. So how many times? And, and Peter says, you know, up to seven times. And we think, well, that's kind of random. How about like 27 or six or five? Why seven? Well, to the Jewish mind in the first century, seven was a number of perfection. So Peter says, okay, surely if I've done it seven times, then I've sort of perfected the uh, essence of what you mean when you say that we should forgive people. I mean, I've, I've done enough. And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, which I thought Peter just rolled his eyes, right? And you say, well, 77, that seems a little random too. Well, in the first century, Jewish mind, 77 was basically a way to say endlessly. You forgive endlessly. And I think Peter probably thought, uh, that's not possible. That, that's naive. I, I'm going to be like a doormat. And, and Jesus, even if I could get that concept in my mind, I'm not sure I could ever convince my heart to forgive endlessly. I mean, people... People amass an emotional debt with me, and you're saying to sort of let it go on forever. How is that even possible? I mean, to do that, we'd have to reframe the whole conversation. And in response to that tension, Jesus, in the next verse, begins to tell a parable. And a parable is a story, so it's fictional, but it's designed to allow us to see things from heaven's perspective. So Jesus says, you want a perspective shift. Here's what you need to think about tells him a story. So it didn't happen, but it, it sort of represents heaven's perspective. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, or this is what God, how God sees things, a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So in the parable, you meet this king. He apparently does business with his servants. He lends them money. They do something with the money, and the day comes that they pay him back, probably with interest. He says, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. We go, oh, that's nice, 10,000 talents. I have no idea how much 10,000 talents is, right? And here's what you do. When you do the study behind this parable, you start to realize that the amount of the debt this first guy owed is critical for us to understand the story. So I went to our friends at Wikipedia. Here's what I learned. In the first century, a talent was the amount of money an average worker could make in 20 years, which means that 10,000 talents would take you a mere 200,000 years of work to earn, it's a ridiculous debt. It would be like today, a day laborer, let's say, makes $15 an hour or $120 a day. That's like saying, you know, your plumber goes out and amasses a debt of $8.8 billion. Okay? Like it's an un- unrepayable, impossible debt, which is precisely Jesus' point. Uh, Jesus continues. Since he was not able to pay, (laughs) snicker, 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 that was a little humor there, right? The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, this seems cruel to us, but in the first century, this was business as usual. If you owed somebody a debt that you couldn't repay, They could sell your things, and they could even sell family members as a way to repay the debt. However, even this would not help with an $8.8 billion debt, would you agree, right? I mean, I love my four boys, but I doubt anybody's going to give me $8.8 billion for them. I'm just saying, right? Um, Okay, he continues. The servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Why is that funny? (laughs) So oh, I just need a little time, right? Like I don't know, say 120,000 years or something like that. I mean, it'd be great, right? Uh, he, the servant, makes an empty promise. He owes a debt he can't possibly repay, and I think everyone in the story is sort of like going, "Where are you going with this, Jesus?" Well, here we go in the next verse. The servant's master, the king, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And you're thinking, well, what's going on here? Question Why does the master cancel the debt? And this question is really the key to understanding what Jesus is trying to say. It is not because of what the servant says, the servant lies, right? But Jesus, remember, wants us to see something from heaven's perspective. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to his followers, and at this moment in the story, they wouldn't have caught it, but they catch on later. What Jesus is trying to communicate is if we're going to be okay with God, as in our sin has left us in debt with God, a debt that we could never repay, it is going to be God's grace and not our efforts that make us okay. If we're going to be okay with God, it is going to be his grace and not our efforts that get us there. You might even say it's scandalous grace. It's grace that defies logic. It's an amazing, stunning, beautiful, scandalous grace. And by the way, this is what makes Christianity different than every other religious system and Jesus different than every other religious teacher. Uh, many religious teachers would come and say, if you want to be right with God, you need to do all these things. Jesus comes along and says, if you want to be right with God, it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what I'm going to to do. And, and in fact, when the people first heard about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, they said, Boy, that's that's good news. That's where we get our word gospel. If you're familiar with the term gospel, gospel means good news. The gospel is a demonstration of scandalous grace. It's not by our works that we're made right with God, it's what He accomplished through sending Jesus. It said really, really clearly in a letter to early Christians living in Ephesus. Um, Paul, an early pastor, writes these words. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. Because everything in us thinks I can earn it back. I can get it right. I can do enough good to overdo or to, to compensate for the bad. Paul says not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. Jesus paid a debt. That we could never repay. Jesus paid it all. Someone should write a song about that. Okay, so jump back into the parable with me. So the servant has just been forgiven billions of dollars in debt, and you can just imagine as the reality of this strikes him, what must be going on in his spirit? This guy must be floating. He must be on cloud nine. This is like he just won a million dollar lottery 8,800 times in a row. I mean, he has to be in a good mood, I wonder what happens next. So here we go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So 100 denarii, denarii is a day's labor, 100 days labor, uh, $12,000-ish at $15 an hour, eight hours per day. So a large amount, but certainly repayable. And the question rises, how does this guy who's just been forgiven billions of dollars treat a guy who owes him 12 grand? Here's here's what we learn. He grabbed him, And began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And if I'm there and I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, oh, no, you don't, right? There's something in this that we're like, this is not okay. How dare you receive that sort of gift and not become generous in response? And they're all kind of looking at Jesus going, this is a terrible story. What is going to happen to this guy? I mean, who would like a guy like this? Who would do something like this? Jesus continues, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Wait a minute, somebody else just did this, right? The guy that was forgiven got on his knees before the king, and he said the same thing. He said, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. And you say, oh, okay, maybe this guy gets another chance. Okay, so the posture is the same, the request is the same. Here's the outcome. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. This strikes us completely wrong, and this was Jesus' point. So he's talking to the disciples. Peter's question, how many times do I have to forgive? Jesus tells a story. At this point in the story, they're like, yeah, I'm I'm so, I cannot believe that this guy would receive that much grace and not become a gracious person in response. That is scandalous. That is not okay. And moreover, the debt he was forgiven wasn't repayable, and the other debt was. Well, they weren't the only ones who thought it was wrong. Jesus continues, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master, the king, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? It's not okay for you to receive a gift like that and have something in your heart, not shift. It continues, in his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which is which is great, because again, he can't pay back all he owed, right? But if you're one of the disciples, you're sitting there going, aha, now this is a good story, Jesus. Justice has been served. This guy should be in jail. This guy should be tortured. You can't receive grace like that and not pass it on. That's completely ridiculous. And at this moment, Jesus performs the greatest teacher ninja move ever, because the whole thing is a setup, okay? Check out what he says next. He looks at the disciples, takes a deep breath, and says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart, gasp. What? So, okay, we got into the story, and we forgot the question that started the story. Peter says, how many times you forgive, you say forgive endlessly, then you tell us this story, and the story is intended to shift our perspective. And so, Jesus, what you're saying is that this sort of, that when we don't forgive, other people, were like the guy that doesn't forgive the debt that couldn't be repaid. And I think Jesus would say, absolutely. In fact, Jesus couldn't be any more clear. He says, forgiveness is supposed to be multidimensional. There's a sense in which you are forgiven by God in heaven, your heavenly father. He forgives the wrong that you do. And that is a gift that cannot be earned. But he said, in response to this gift, you are supposed to be people who extend forgiveness along a horizontal access to other people. There's supposed to be a connection between the grace you receive, the scandalous, unbelievable, beautiful, disruptive grace, and the scandalous, beautiful, disruptive grace that you share with one another. It's a whole different economy. And if you miss the connection, it's torture. But we already knew that. Have you ever, not forgiven someone for years or maybe decades. And if you're honest on a good day, you don't think about it much, but there are these moments, and they pop back into your head and you have this sense like they're literally renting space in your head, but they're not paying the rent because j- they just keep coming back and you replay these conversations and revisit all these old hurts, and you you justify in your mind why you why you don't forgive them because they, they don't deserve to be forgiven and it's like they're always with you. It's like you're carrying them around with you and somehow it's starting to affect your heart. And, and then when it affects your heart, then that affects everything, everything else. It's, it's, it's a form of torture. Maybe it was a boyfriend who cheated on you. Maybe it was, it was a spouse. Maybe it was a business partner whose actions cost you a ton of money. Maybe it was a, a tenant who didn't pay their rent over and over and over again. And, and it's like, it costs you thousands to get them evicted. Maybe it's, maybe it's a family member. And they did something, and, and it was malicious, and it was wrong, and it was malicious, and it was wrong, and you both know it. And yet you still carry that debt with you. I don't think the deeper meaning of this parable hit Peter until months later. Because months after the conversation, Peter watches Jesus hang on a Roman cross, and in that moment, I think Peter realized something that he didn't catch at the time that Jesus told the parable. As he watched Jesus hang on the cross, I wondered, did it hit him? If this was the price of his forgiveness, then who was he to withhold forgiveness from another? I mean, God's forgiveness of Peter took the death of his son. Peter's decision to forgive might cost him his pride. It might cost him justice, which isn't even always possible anyway. And it's true for Peter, and I think it's true for us. I mean, if we think about it, in the shadow of our hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward the other person. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is nothing more than a gift from one undeserving person to another. It's a powerful perspective shift. And forgiveness in this context is a gift that ensures our freedom from a prison of bitterness and resentment. And I think this force, this helps us understand something that an early pastor named Paul writes in several letters to several different communities who are wrestling with the same issue. I'll show you one he wrote to Christians Living in Ephesus. Here's what Paul says. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. So they're like trying to wrestle down, what does it mean to live the way of Jesus in our culture? He says, okay, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ Jesus, God Forgave you. It's it's like this connection again between what has been received and what we are to pass on. I've been a pastor now for 20 years or so, and whenever I meet with someone who's hesitant to forgive, I always notice the same thing. They're evaluating their decision whether or not to forgive based on what was done to them. That is natural. That is normal. We all do that. But Jesus invites us to evaluate our decision to forgive, not in light of what was done to us, but what was done for us, as in what God accomplished for us. Followers of Jesus are invited to view forgiveness from the perspective of the cross, like the servant in Jesus' parable. We've been forgiven a debt we could never repay, and in response, we are to extend grace and forgiveness to others, even when we don't feel like it, even when they don't deserve it because they never deserve it. Which brings us to our big idea for today. Following Jesus requires demonstrating scandalous grace, that disruptive, unexpected, beautiful, invasive grace that changes everything and changes us. It's almost like the parable of Jesus says there's two different ways that we can live in this world. We can, we can lean into what comes naturally into the system of the world and seek revenge and repayment when we are wronged, and that's normal. Everyone around us is going to be doing that, or we can choose to live by the counterintuitive system that God designed, and in this system, we forgive. We forgive debts that do not deserve to be forgiven, not because of the person, but because of what's been done for us. We absorb the cost, we set that person free, and here's the promise, in doing so, we set ourselves free we've received breathtaking grace and we've been invited we've been invited to be changed by it but to forgive it costs us dearly and that's that's why it's so counterintuitive especially if the hurt is deep it doesn't even have to be new if the hurt is deep and it, it costs us one of my favorite Uh, Authors and pastors, a guy named Tim Keller in New York City uh, wrote a book called The Reason for God. And in that book, he writes this. He says, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, he goes on to refrain from lashing out against someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. He says, you are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out of the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. He says, yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. He notes that Jesus' invitation to forgive will feel like death. But in the end, it is a death that leads to resurrection. And I I would argue that deep down, we all know this is true. We all know that not forgiving someone is a form of torture. That unforgiven sin, it, it wears us down and it beats us up, especially as we carry the hurt for years or even decades. It shapes us in all sorts of sinister ways. And that's why I'm convinced that the counseling professor highlighted the importance of forgiveness. So he's working with future church leaders. He says, you need to take care of your own heart, especially if you're going to help other people take care of their hearts. Christians either become people of increasing grace over time or they don't. It's one thing to accept the good gift of vertical forgiveness God offers us on the cross. It's another to accept the good gift of horizontal forgiveness. So in closing today, I, just, I need to ask you a question. And it's the same question that the professor asked our class. <laughs> who would you like to break up behind a wall? Who hurt you? If you're honest and maybe even thought about it for a while and you're like, great, I came to church and I'm thinking about it again, but who, who is that, right, that you still carry with you? And what would it look like to set them free? Because I think Jesus' dream for all of us is that we would be able to answer this question, nobody. 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 Because that, friends, is the path of life. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Okay. Heavenly Father, uh, in this place, I can only imagine uh, where the words of your son land. Um, some of us carried in absolutely unbelievable hurt and unbelievable pain. And when confronted with the idea of setting the other person free, we just feel like that is impossible. And so I pray that something in, something in my words this morning might, might provide that first step. Something about reflecting on the gift that was done for us when we did not deserve it and the unrepayable debt might inspire us To trust you about where life is found. To move towards forgiveness and to embrace it. To find freedom. We thank you that to forgive is a gift. We acknowledge that forgiving and trusting are not the same thing. And that sometimes there are people that are toxic and we need to keep boundaries up. But as far as we are concerned, I pray that you would give us the courage to forgive and then to forgive again. We thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your Son among us as light in darkness to show us the way and to invite us to follow. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Everyone said amen. Friends, we'll see you next week.